Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. All right. Welcome to another episode of Changing the Story. I'm really jazzed for our guest today, Dr. Ernie Ward. Dr. Ward is an award-winning practicing veterinarian and speaker, television and YouTube personality, and podcaster who specializes in teaching veterinary health teams and pet owners how to lead more fulfilling, meaningful, and successful lives. The guiding principle for Dr. Ward's work is life enhancement. He is actively involved in developing veterinary and human medical technologies, diet and exercise research, longevity and disease prevention, and integral medical practices. Dr. Ward currently serves as the co-founder and chief veterinary officer for Wild Earth Pets in Berkeley, California, and the executive director of education from Vertical Vet in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, coast to coast, thanks for joining us, Dr. Ward. Oh, Neil and Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's just a great opportunity to talk about some pretty, you know, out there topics, but that impact our daily lives right now. Well, we definitely like out there topics, so that's great, Dr. Ward. As a visionary, what is the story that you want to bring to the world? Yeah, I think that, you know, like most people's stories, there's a lot of different branches, but the 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 stalk, the trunk, the roots of my story have been how to make people's lives better. Now, obviously, I have focused on animal lives because I do believe they contribute to us in ways that, not, that extend the physical, right? We know that there are physical changes that happen when you pet a dog or stroke a cat. But we also know the emotional context there is so meaningful. And we've just you know, emerged or beginning to emerge from this massive global pandemic. And we know that people that lived with dogs and cats and other companion animals actually had lower reported stress and anxiety. So, you know, emotional, physical, all of these things enhance our lives. And now I'm starting to say, how can we enhance the planet? And we know that climate change is real. We know that our dependency on animal meats, factory farming, you know, is just destroying our planet and contributing to climate change. And so really at this point, I'm trying to say, how do we preserve the future and make it better? What what set you down this path, Dr. Ward? I mean, what, what inspired you to make a difference? You know, I think it's a strong survival instinct. <laughs> you know, it's actually sort of confronting mortality at an early age. And, and really, I, I say that with all sincerity, two major impactful events uh, in my mind that sort of led me down this path. The first occurred when I was seven years old. I grew up in a rural farming family uh, in southwest Georgia, and I had my first two real dogs. I was seven years old, and I actually found these dogs, Taco and Missy. Uh, but yet, we lived, again, adjacent to other farms, and... Taco and Missy roamed, and one night, uh, the South Georgia sky was shattered by the sound, the unmistakable sound of a 12-gauge buckshot going off. Uh, Taco drags himself back home somehow and dies, you know, in my arms. Uh, and so, that was the first traumatic event that sort of said, wow, you know, Animals are impactful, and I dedicated my life at that moment to serving them. The second thing, quite frankly, was watching my father, who in his mid-40s had his chest cracked open, you know, for coronary heart disease, right? So I had seen all my grandfathers, all my great-grandfathers, and now my father die or be diseased by, you know, in this case, coronary heart disease from diet and smoking and alcohol. And I was like, wow, 
that's not how I want this story to end for me. And so it really validated. And I, I would say, once again, it sort of encouraged me to pursue even more of a vegan lifestyle. So, you know, that, that, that survival instinct that we all have within us, Neil, I think is, 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 should say that's the reservoir of strength for the future, right? Because if you want to survive today, if you want to live the best life today, that is what sets you up for living a better life tomorrow. Absolutely. Um, and so you were kind enough actually to participate in the second book that we're working on right now. And we had a great interview with you and you were talking about some things that really blew my mind when it came to, uh, comes to clean meat. And so for people that are unfamiliar with this topic, could you please talk about what your work is and what you're doing right now? Right. Yeah. And, and so again, the term clean meat is one of many that we sort of describe lab grown meat. So these are meat uh, molecules. They're, they're chemically identical to regular meat from an animal. So if you killed a, a cow and you analyze that beef, these are, have the exact same properties, you know, at a molecular level. So it's indistinguishable in reality. And so all of these lab-grown cell-based meats, clean meats, you know, whatever term we want to use. Uh, and honestly, we haven't really settled on the language, which is part of the challenge because, you know, right now from a regulatory standpoint, you know, we, we don't know what to call it. And, and until the USDA and FDA really provide clear guidance, you know, we're all sort of struggling with the language. But getting back to that, um, what, what really led us to form Wild Earth in, in the end of 2017, and from my perspective, you know, there were five of us originally, and from a veterinary perspective, it was, I, I'd lived my entire life sort of as a vegan and a vegetarian, and I felt like I was the good guy. I wasn't the one who was contributing to animal suffering or climate change, you know, or I wasn't the bad guy, you know, encouraging all types of, you know, uh, poor employment and, and slave labor, right? You know, off, off the coast of Indonesia. And so, so you're going, I'm the good guy. And then Gregory Oaken, Dr. Gregory Oaken and his team at UCLA published a study that really changed my, the trajectory of my life as far as wild earth. And in it, he wanted, he postulated, he said, what's the contribution of pet food to greenhouse gas emissions, right? So how many, how much, how many billions of, of, you know, CO2 and, and other, you know, toxic gases are being produced, you know, while we make dog food and cat food. And he concluded that about 25 to 30% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions were directly attributed to pet food manufacturing in the U.S. And then he said, well, how much of all the meat are we feeding these dogs and cats? Because it's a terrific number. I mean, a quarter, a third. And he found that about 25% of all meat raised slaughtered in the US is fed to dogs and cats. So suddenly now here I am saying I'm the good guy. I realize I'm not so good after all because my patients, the animals that I've dedicated my life to serving, they're a major part of a problem that I thought I was helping solve. So that's really what kicked off us looking for alternative proteins, saying how can we impact it on the pet space? Because let's be honest, Michael, we can't solve the climate change issue if we just attack human food because that would be mean 25 to 30% in the US alone we're just completely ignoring. So if we're going to tackle climate change, we're going to have to do it in mass, in totality. We can't just say, well you know, we'll pick and choose like like we'll attack hot dogs, right? I mean that's not going to be meaningful enough to move the needle and this is cataclysmic that we're talking about. And again, I don't want to be one of those hyperbolic, you know, presenters here or, or guests on your show, but you know, this is really happening and it's happening at such an accelerated pace. And I was talking with a friend of mine recently, 
we were saying, okay, how much time did we get a respite, a pause with the global shutdown, right? So like you, you probably have seen stories where like the emissions from China were dramatically reduced, right? And so you saw Africa, all these, you know, major, you know, industries were shut down. And the truth is it bought us maybe weeks, I mean, so the calculations, because on the other side of this, China has ramped up production. So, you know, it's, it's honestly one of those things where, hey, you got a little bit, but now we're taking it right back. And so um, I think that that was what, that was, that was the seminal thing for me, Michael is saying, look, I am here to try to preserve the future for my children. I have two daughters and I want to make sure that they have a future that's actually somewhat normal, right? That they don't, you know, have to have to wait in, in galoshes every day to go to work, you know? So that's really powerful. It's really important. I mean, when it comes to climate change, I think a lot of us think like it's such a huge problem. What can I do as one person about it? But I think if we all do small things, it adds up for sure. How, how did you decide to go down this path? I mean, it's, it's a great idea, but it sounds like you got to do some work, got to convince some people to come on board. What was that journey like? Yeah. And, and, you know, so you're absolutely right, Neil. It's, it's great to have ideas, but the execution is always the, the sticky part. Um, and so we got lucky. I'll be honest with you. The first thing I think most good science actually has its origins in just serendipity. And so we were thinking about, okay, what could we use? And so we started looking at the traditional ways that people were making alternative proteins in pet food and a plant proteins, right? So people were doing this, having great success. We were like, well, we'll just do that. But then Ron Shigeta, Dr. Ron Shigeta, who is one of the, the early founders of the company, you know, he was like, I think we need to be looking at fungal proteins. And I was kind of like, you know, I had a cursory knowledge and experience with fungal proteins. And, and honestly, what I knew about them was that they were notoriously difficult to ferment, you know, that the yields were low and inconsistent, and that the cost was prohibitive. And, you know, so we had looked at this in pet food industry, you know, 20 years prior, but it just didn't work out. So I'm like, yeah, I don't know, Ron, I mean, I, you know, I recall, you know, doing some work here and there on it just didn't pan out. He's like, things have changed. And that's really the luck part, right? That we had somebody who was willing to push an idea and then the timing, right? So you got to have luck and good timing. And so he was right. The scale of fermentation technologies had changed dramatically in 20 years. We had amazing, you know, basically people doing biofuels. So people that were looking at all these different fermentation technologies were largely coming from the fuel industry and they were making advances that, you know, were kind of unheard of 20 years prior. And so suddenly now we could actually grow these proteins at scale and cost had come down because remember at the same time that we're working on this in late 17, early 18, Impossible Burger, you know, I mean, Beyond Meat, all, all these companies are starting to pop. They're attracting investors, which led us to the third part that you have to have. You got to have a little luck, got to have the right timing, and then you got to have the resources. And so suddenly now investors were flooding into this space, these alternative proteins, future foods. And we were one of the few you know, especially at that time, pet food companies going, hey, guys, don't forget us. You know, this is a tens of billions of dollars. People are spending 30, 40 billion dollars a year in the U.S. on pet food. We think we can serve, you know, a, a portion of that market. So that's all those things had to line up. And of course, you know, we just had a great team right out of the gate, people that were really creative, people that were willing to take risks. You know, I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? I mean, because suddenly now we're selling, you know, vegan dog food. And even though I don't use that term, it's more plant-based. But, you know, the reality is 
you know, people are like, what? They're carnivores. Aren't they like wolves or something? And so you're having to overcome all of this inertia, um, which is why we wrote the book, The Clean Pet Food Revolution, because, you know, we wanted to make sure that we exposed some of those myths and, and give them the current science. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, I know that people are very concerned about this issue. They're very concerned about climate change. They want to do their part. But at the same time, I think that there is a reluctance for people to get beyond the traditional notions of what meat is. There's a kind of ick factor. Just there is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even if we're talking about animals, uh, other animals eating, not talking about humans eating meat, but even our dogs and our cats eating, eating clean meat. Uh, how do you address that kind of concern that people have about the, let's just call it an ick factor around this? Yeah, yeah. And, and Michael, that's actually the terminology we use in, in the book because you're absolutely right. Your instincts are spot on. It is a different, in fact, so what I do was something I've been working on, the, you know, maybe for the last five to seven years is something called ingredient bias. The ick factor is rooted in a bias, a cognitive bias. Based on our cultural upbringing, society acceptance, societal acceptance, we say, okay, you know, in our country, we don't eat dogs. But if you go to certain parts of Asia, a dog is like a chicken, right? You and I instantly had a moral repugnant feeling. We were like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But yet these ingredient biases are a construct that we have created to really satisfy availability. I mean, quite frankly, the reason that we in the US prefer certain foods is because they were accessible, affordable. Okay. And so then you get a bias towards things that aren't. When you talk about mushrooms, a lot of people in the US are just like, they don't quite, quite get it. It's something you put on pizza, right? And the reality is, I mean, mushrooms are one of nature's super healing foods. And throughout all, all of Asia, they are made into some spectacular dishes. So, you know, my point is that, that that ick factor is something that we have to transcend with science. Because when you look at ingredient bias, we look at ingredients and we say, well, meat is good. Meat makes you strong, but it's not the meat. It's not the cow. It's the amino acids. It's the constituents of the meat. It's the vitamins, the minerals, the fats, the carbohydrates, and other ingredients, right? So we tend to look at ingredients as like meat is good. And I tend to look at this saying, well, what is in that meat? What are the amino acids that make it good? And then how can we replicate that? So we have to transcend with science. And in fact, in the book, I talk about this future nomenclature, like how currently like ingredients are limiting because it does, like if I say pea, instantly an image of the Jolly Green Giant is conjured up in many people that are listening to this podcast. And yet I don't see it that way. I'm looking at well, what are the proteins? What about the carbohydrates? What vitamins and minerals are, are so we've got to really use that scientific uh, knowledge. And then I think the final thing is as we begin this evolution of food towards these different ways of thinking about it, the ick factor gets removed because it all boils down to health because see what I'm trying to do is provide an environment both for myself, my family and my pets that we give them the nutrients that they need to be as healthy as possible to fight disease so that I don't wind up like my father. I mean, I'm far older than my father now whenever he had his, his you know, uh, heart surgery. And so I'm saying what we have to do is say an ingredient is a nutrient vessel. That's all it is. So whether it's meat or chicken or fungi or peas, what we're doing is saying, what is contained in that vessel? Let's break it apart. And then that's how the body utilizes it. So I love your ick factor. It's just a simple bias. And I think that what's happening is the younger generation is starting to be much more open-minded. One of the, the fascinating things we talk about in the book about how this is happening all over the world. When you go to Asia, 
they are so receptive to this stuff because they already have a more adventurous palate. That's good and bad, but you know, they are already very accepting of new things. So like in Singapore, people are all over these products, whereas perhaps in South Dakota, they're not so much. Nothing against well, South Dakota. Look, I, I, I 100% agree with you, but as humans, we're not exactly rational people. I mean, I wonder if science is enough because I remember actually putting a post on LinkedIn one time about cultured meat, meat grown from stem cells, and the visceral responses I got back was just kind of, I'll call it eye-opening for me at least, but people felt very strongly opinionated because it wasn't, you know, natural. Right. I I totally get the science part, but is there an emotional or, you know, some irrational tug that we have to try and address as well. Right. And that's why I say it's a cognitive bias. This ingredient bias is a cognitive derived construct that we have just said, hey, we put everything else outside of that box as bad or harmful or not natural. And, you know, and it's really, it's fascinating because, you know, I, over the past several years in my lectures, I, I will often start off with a joke, say, um, if you want to start a bar fight, ask somebody what they feed their dog, right? I mean, we've, we've really gotten to this level of emotional attachment to food that is unhealthy because, you know, you, you, know, you have to pry my cold dead fingers off my hamburger, right? I mean, and it will kill you. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's sort of this, I get it, Neil, and I don't have an answer other than I'm going to try to out-science everything because... That is the only truth. The source of truth for me and for most of, of, of your listeners, I would hope, is scientific evidence. And so when we're looking at ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, improve health and longevity, decrease disease incidence, you know, it leads us straight into these future food topics. Well, it sounds like you're definitely changing the story. I mean, that it's about the narrative, the story that you tell. And clearly there's been a narrative around even the kinds of meats that we eat, as you mentioned before, things that we're accustomed to in our culture. So let's imagine we're 10 years out, 15 years out. How do you imagine the world is different? Assuming people get on to and begin to think the way that you think about the, way, the foods that we eat. What does yeah. that future look like? Love that question, Michael. Uh, number one, it's going to be one of resource scarcity because when we start to project 10 to 15 years out, climate change has already impacted you know, global agriculture in significant ways. And so what will happen is beef even to a lesser extent, chicken and, and pork will be very expensive. And so you're going to start to see this elitism of meat, as I call it in the book, because, you know, when we do look 15, 20 years in the future, steak will be a, a very much a, a delicacy only for the elite. And I think that this is where actually trickle down will start to have the impact in mass. One of the things that we talk about in the book is like, are places like Southeast Asia and Africa the place where future foods will take hold first because of cost and accessibility? Because you can grow these foods in fermentation vats in Africa where maybe you don't have access to arid soils. So, you know, there's, there's some very, very interesting things. But getting back to the original ick factor, Michael, that's where I think that I think it's going to start to break hard one of two ways. Number one, there is a, as I call it, the vegan health halo. So a lot of people are realizing that plant-based diets are just better for human health. And we're starting to see some more evidence grow uh, in, in, in dog studies for sure. Obviously, cats are completely separate, which you know we'll have to table that for my next book. But um, we're making some, some interesting progress there with, with those amino acids. But having said that, the health halo will, will start to polarize the market further because I mentioned this elitism. So it's going to cost a lot more to have that steak or filet mignon or whatever it is, right? Uh, so that's going to 
attract one crowd, but yet then elitism in terms of health. And so there's going to be this strong cohort primarily led by millennials and Gen Z or whatever we're going to call them who are going to say, you know what? I actually want to eat foods and drink things that make me feel good and energized and improve my cognitive performance. And I think that that's the polarization that's going to occur, right? It's going to be like, you know, I can do this, you know, I can wear this gold Rolex. I do not have a gold Rolex, but because, you know, that shows I am powerful and successful or whatever, right? We want to have those obvious, you know, those, uh, those, conspicuous consumption triggers and markers out there, those signals to the world, right, that we're successful. And then there's going to be this other cohort, hopefully like you guys and me, we're going to say, you know, I get that, but actually I want to live a long, long time. And on top of that, I want every day to be filled with creativity and energy and vitality and the ability to do my job and interact with family and loved ones. So that's, that's where it's going to break. And honestly, the future health breakthroughs are going to be rooted in future foods because as I keep getting back to this nutrient vessel theory that it's again forget your ingredient bias we're going to be able to dial up on Michael's DNA we're going to look at Neil's microbiome we're going to look at all of the different data that we have on you and we're going to say you need exactly this much of this amino acid this much of this vitamin and this mineral because right now you're fighting an infection that you didn't even know about and I'm telling you this dialed in precision nutrition is here in 20 years it's just fascinating world I'd love to take this actually one step further because I'm totally with you, Dr. Ward. And I I really hope this is what unfolds because I think us obviously being healthier, living longer, more cognitive ability will tap into new forms of imagination and creativity. Just aside from the, you know, the food realm, what else do you think we could probably tap into then? I mean, obviously yeah, I got climate change, but what other things might might be able to actually accomplish as um, a benefit from doing all this? Right. Well, I think, you know, there's no better source of truth for this. And that's our dear friend for all of us. And that's the famous author, Stephen Kotler. And so I've known Stephen now for what, 12, 15 years. He enjoyed just amazing. And if you haven't read his books, just please go Google Stephen Kotler and read them all and read them all very quickly because it's time. I mean, he is so, he was so far ahead of his time, you know, 15 years ago, but now he's, you know, he's amazing. But when we look at like, what are the other areas? The first thing I will say is that Artificial intelligence is going to make things better for every industry. And and right now, people are so afraid, am I going to lose my job to AI? What AI is going to do, Neil, as you know better than anybody, you and Michael are experts in this area, it's going to actually enhance the work that you currently do. So we see this as only broadening opportunities. But having said that, AI allows us to take massive amounts of data on an individual or on a global scale and actually now make some sense of it. Because, you know, the, the problem with medicine, and again, I'm a veterinarian, so I'm looking at, you know, all these different data points on health for a dog or a cat or a horse or whatever, right? And a human doctor does the same thing. But it's overwhelming, Neil. It's just too much data. I can only like... I can only take a thin slice of that data and make an assessment, okay? So, like, if I'm looking at kidney failure in a cat, I'm focusing on the primary biomarkers for kidney disease. Whoopsie, I forgot brain. Whoopsie, didn't evaluate cardiac function, right? Muscles. I mean, so... With AI, that's going to allow us to be better practitioners of health because we're going to say, hey, don't forget all of this stuff. And so I'm, I'm super, super buoyant on that. The second thing is I think that as we transfer away from factory farming and we stop the destruction of habitable and arable lands, that's going to open us up for even better opportunities for human existence. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, people always say, oh, well, here's the deal. 
we can just take the, the, uh, the beef ranches in, in Brazil and replace it with pea farms. Is that what you want, Ernie? You want fermentation things? I'm saying, you know what's actually going to happen? We're going to build better communities on those lands, right? So we're going to take the cattle, replace them with fermentation vats, but they require very little space and resources. And we're going to be able to build better homes or apartment complexes with more resources for children to grow into beautiful intellects. So, I mean, like I am super, and I will continue to be super bullish and optimistic. What frightens me the most though, is again, some of the political climates. I mean, we mentioned Brazil, we mentioned of course, uh, our country is that they do tend to slow down progress. And right now, when it comes to these future foods, Neil, you and I have had this conversation before and Michael as well, Right now, we just don't have clarity from the FDA and the USDA. It's slowing down a lot of work in the Bay Area where we are, you know, we just don't know what to do. We don't know what next step to take because if we take the wrong step, then suddenly we're deregulated. I mean, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, you know, we come under new regulation and suddenly our product is, is no, no longer viable. So it's frightening from that perspective. The only thing that's going to hold us back really are, are our own imposed, self-imposed regulations and rules. Uh, so... Speaking of earlier conversations, we were talking right before we started recording this, and you were talking about the future of space travel, especially when it came, comes to animals. And I think that's another interesting topic, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. And Michael, just in, a, in the quickest sense, right now what's being explored is how do we get human beings to arrive after a long trek in deep space sane. Okay. I mean, think about it, right? Because unless we can put you in some type of cybernetic state, so where, you know, you're actually frozen as you see in the movies, which is being worked on. The Russians are making some incredible advances there. But um, the reality is we're going to have to figure out a way to get you there whole. And so the isolation of space travel alone, much less the colonization experience, we know that we've got to figure out ways to have people feel fulfilled, okay? And I mentioned at the very beginning that that animals are an important part of the emotional and physical well-being of human beings. And in fact, you know, the, the precedent here is the way we evolved as humans, as hominids, because if you go back and you dial back 35, 55,000 years ago, I mean, much of human, the major progress that we made was accompanied by dogs. I mean, so this is kind of hard baked into our existence. And I think if you suddenly say, we're going to put everybody in space and they no longer have contact with animals, this is where a lot of us are starting to say this could be problematic for behaviors, right? Because you can't just do all of this through a computer program. And look, I, I don't disagree. A lot of enriched enrichment programs can be done virtually. But Neil, I, do, I don't think we can replace the, the experience, the interaction of physical presence. And so... What we're looking at, there's really several different ways to figure this one out. Number one, can we breed a species of dog or cat or some kind of companion animal that is very, as, as we say, less resource intensive? So that means they require less proteins, amino acids, require less hydration, they produce less waste. I mean, so all those things. And so there's some very smart people that are beginning to ask that very question, right? So, I mean, this could be, uh, I mean, you know, I used to say, think of a miniature, miniature, miniature dog. Okay. So could that satisfy that relationship, you know, um, in a way that a a robot couldn't, I don't know. Uh, Having said that, I think that, that we're really going to have to explore it. The second thing is that, okay, let's just say you translate, I mean, you transfer us to Mars and we've got a Mars colony. Um, 
would we have pets or animals in space? The first thing I'll say is there will never be a cow on Mars. So if you think you're going to feed each other on Mars by having a filet mignon, you're not unless it was grown in a fermentation vat, okay? So then we start to say, okay, well, what about other animals? How would we introduce a potentially invasive species into another environment? I mean, there's a lot of questions that have to be answered, but I'm still going to sit back and go, okay, what is a human being? What makes us humans. And part of that is caring for animals and interacting with nature. And I just don't see how we replace that all virtually. I don't think that if I just had a plant in my cabin on my interstellar spaceship that I'm going to be a happy pilot. I think I'm going to need it more to be an astronaut. And I think part of that is going to be, you know, that um, an animal. It's funny, you know, I used to always make a joke early in days. It was like, A, why are there no uh, pets you know, on the Starship Enterprise, and B, why did uh, Ridley have a cat, an alien, okay? These are two very different versions of the future, but I think you can see clearly that an alien, part of, of her survival, quite frankly, was to care for her cat, Ripley, right? She wanted to make sure that that cat, that was the last thing she did before she shuts the shuttle to, to the escape pod to, to leave. And so, I, I think that that is a fundamental part of the human experience. Anyway, I've gone on too long about this, but uh, you get the idea. I want, I want dogs in space. <laughs> <laughs> well, was the dog the first thing in orbit? I think the Russians shot the dog. They did. They did. Yes. Was, I've been to that. One of the pioneers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so true. Uh, now, that's obviously, you know, what was great about that particular case was that dog was recovered, you know, so this wasn't just a, a one-off to, to do, you know, some horrible experiments on that dog was celebrated in Russia. Awesome. Well, this, this has been absolutely inspiring. Uh, I hope our audience is, if they would love to learn more about you, your work, how can they get in touch? How can they get involved? Yeah. Thanks, Neil. I, I think the easiest thing is uh, drernieward.com, D-R-E-R-N-I-E-W-A-R-D.com. Of course, I'm all over social media at Dr. Ernie Ward. But, you know, I think that more importantly, if you're interested in future, if you're interested in, you know, how can we help our planet, you know, live and survive and thrive over the next decade or a hundred years, we're going to have to take account you know, our pets as well. What are we feeding them? I'll leave you with this, Michael. The average American cat, going back to that Oaken study, is fed 30 pounds of fish a year. That's more than twice what the U.S. adult eats, right? This is simply unsustainable. We've got to get more creative. I don't want to give up my dogs and cats and companion animals, but I also don't want to damage the future. So how can I do that? We start with the food. Absolutely. Awesome. Fantastic point. So thank you again, Dr. Ward. We really appreciate you being on our show. Thank you. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you.